0: As you remain standing, let me encourage you to take up your copy of God's Holy Word and turn with me there to Philippians chapter 2. We'll continue our preaching through Philippians. We're at verse 19 through 30, but this morning I'd like to back all the way up to verse 1 to get a running start, to set the context and, and remind us of where we are in Paul's letter to the Philippians So take up your copy of Word, God's Word, and read with me there, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And our text for today. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. And hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ, He came close to death, not regarding His life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we come before your Word this morning, we encounter a text in which the Holy Spirit has been pleased to reveal the commendation and character of three of your faithful servants. Help us in the preaching of the word to see what you would have us to see and know what you would have us to know and bring application according to your good pleasure that we might be conformed more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow us in our love for the church and our appreciation for your good providence and give us more thankful hearts ready to render honor to the wonderful variety of gifts that you have given to edify the church and advance the gospel of Christ. Do this for the sake of your name, the strength of the church, and the glory of your Son, Jesus, for it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I can tell already this morning I've got an itchy throat, so I'm going to preemptively pull out one of these. Convenient cough drops. (laughs) All righty. Well, I began reading this morning at verse 1, rather than simply reading the text of the message, which is verses 19 through 30, so that we might be reminded, be reminded that Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. This is a truth we need to be reminded of often and think of often. The Lord, Jesus Christ, humbled himself. He took upon himself flesh and blood and he embodied humility. He models and calls us to humility as well. In Luke 14, Jesus teaches, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does Christian humility look like? in real life. And that's the question posed and addressed throughout chapter 2. After calling for humility in verses 3 and 4, Paul gave the supreme example of lowliness of mind in the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11. That was and that is the ultimate example of true humility. The second illustration was of Paul himself who poured himself out as a drink offering on behalf of the Philippians. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. And now we reach two more real-life examples, Paul's son in the faith, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, a godly man who was a spiritual brother and a co-laborer in the church of Philippi. And in this, we are expected to see that humility is the prerequisite character needed for anyone who desires to be a faithful servant of Christ. Genuine, true, selfless, deeply rooted humility. And while I hope that we all agree that clear doctrinal teaching and explicit commands for living the Christian life are essential, God's people also need real-life models to see how the doctrine works itself out in everyday life And here Paul provides two real-life examples, in addition to his own example, of those whose lives reflect the mindset and humility of Christ, and then he issues a call to the church to pattern their life after them. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are men who have demonstrated the mindset of Christ in full view of the Philippian church as faithful servants of the Lord. I would therefore like for us to consider the text before us and the examples provided of the lives of these men and see what are the traits that made them excellent models of Christ's faithful servants. But you will probably want to know this morning that I will only make it up to verse 24 in the message today, part 2 we'll need to wait until next week. So... In Faithful Servants Part 1, you might say, I would like for us to focus on the first nine, and I'm sure there are many more, traits that we can find here, characteristics of the faithful servant we find in verses 19 through 24. So let's begin marching our way through the text this morning, reading verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your estate. While we may be first tempted to think about Timothy here in this verse, he's named, I believe that it is Paul himself who provides our first trait of a faithful servant. So trait number one, those note-takers among you, one of nine, trait number one, a faithful servant trusts in the Lord. Before we give our attention to Timothy, we do well to notice the apostle here couches his hopes and plans for Timothy and for his own expected reunion with the Philippians in the sovereign will of his divine master. He's making plans, but he's trusting that the Lord is in this, no doubt seeking the Lord in prayer. Paul's forecast of coming events exhibits a deep awareness that Christ the Lord controls all of our hopes and all of our plans. What Paul plans and what he hopes are always in the Lord. Paul is imitating Christ as the supremely submissive servant of the Lord who came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. I expect that most of us gathered here this morning know that Christians are supposed, we are obligated to attach the caveat, Lord willing to the plans that we make. But this is not just a mindless thing we say. After all, biblical wisdom teaches that a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And in James chapter 4, James explicitly calls any presumption in this matter boasting in our ignorance and that all such boasting is evil. We are to trust in the Lord. We are to make our plans Lord willing, seeking his blessing. And so with the simple opening words, I trust in the Lord Jesus, Paul is a role model for the Philippians and for us. He shows us what spiritually mature, Christ-like planning and thinking looks like in the routine decisions of daily life. Shall I keep Timothy here with me in Rome to help me or, or send him away to encourage my spiritual children at Philippi? And when or if I am released from Roman custody, shall I immediately set out eastward and bring comfort to the ones I love in Philippi and Ephesus and Galatia? Or is there a different priority? Because Paul is resting in the Lord's will and resting in the Lord's faithful provision. He is freed from preoccupation with himself to live boldly with a priority on God's own glory. So, church, do you desire to be a faithful servant of Christ? Assuming the affirmative, which is an assumption made throughout the message and, and in all of Scripture, actually, then how do you plan for the future? Are you becoming spiritually mature like Paul? And so you will formulate your hopes and plans with humility, always aware that Jesus, your sovereign Lord, has both the right and the wisdom to overrule your choices and redirect your paths. Along with humility, your planning will express your passionate commitment, not chiefly to your own security and comfort, but rather to Jesus' glory and his mission in the world. Is that how we make our plans? And his mission, by the way, is not limited to the work of apostles and pastors and evangelists. Don't limit the scope of this application to just those who would be like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus in their particular callings in the church. It includes all your life, and no one is accepted. Therefore, we need to know that a faithful servant trusts in the Lord. And so that brings us to Timothy, in whom we, we see the second trait. Trait number two, a faithful servant is a loyal friend. The first of Timothy's virtues we read about is what a long-lasting supporter he is to Paul. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Paul is in prison in Rome, and Timothy, where is Timothy? Timothy is right there with him. This is not a popular time, by the way, to be associated with the apostle. Timothy, nevertheless, is with him, even in these tough times. When others have abandoned Paul, Timothy has persevered. We, too, as faithful servants of Christ, need to be loyal in our relationships with brothers and sisters in the church. Paul has paid a great price to minister the gospel to Timothy, to be a mentor and a spiritual father to him. And Timothy proves his loyalty in attending to Paul in prison here. The apostle desires to send Timothy to the church in Philippi so that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Paul will be encouraged when he receives a future report of their spiritual progress, just as they will be encouraged when they learn, Lord willing, of his release and Timothy, as Paul's loyal friend, is the right man for the job. There is no second guessing whether Timothy will go when, when and where he is sent, and he can be trusted to follow through to the end. We need to be loyal friends. And in verse 20, we find a third trait. Number three, a faithful servant is like-minded. <clears throat> Here in verse 20, for I have no one like minded who will sincerely care for your state. What an extraordinary statement for the apostle to make. As Paul traveled, he was surrounded by many co workers. This team included such men as Barnabas, John Mark, Titus, and others who were part of his missionary team, we might call it today. Timothy, though, stands out like a rare jewel. To Paul. Timothy uniquely distinguishes himself as having the same mind as the apostle. Paul and Timothy are knit together into one soul. They are one minded and one hearted. They are like minded. Paul has previously exhorted the church to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In order to serve the Lord faithfully, we need to jointly share. In the mind of Christ. And as we do this. As we do this fully and faithfully. Our labors are eased. Our spirits are mutually encouraged. And our ministry is multiplied. So who is like-minded with you? Such a person is a rare treasure worth pursuing. Cultivating and maintaining. As Timothy with Paul. They will be your be with you in your times of greatest adversity. When others leave, they will remain. If you do not have such a kindred spirit in your life, pray that God will bring such a close brother or sister in your life. If you do not desire someone like-minded in this way, then search your soul and ask the Lord, Why do I not have this desire? Everyone needs a companion like this. Even the Apostle Paul had such a need. And so do you, and so do I. And I trust that we are like-minded in our desire to be more like Christ and in in our worship to the one true and living God. But also note this fourth trait that we also find in verse 20. Uh, Number four, a faithful servant sincerely cares for God's people. Not only is Timothy like-minded, but Paul indicates that he sincerely cares for the condition of the people in the Philippian church. Timothy is someone who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the people there. He has a large heart and is deeply concerned for their spiritual good. And the word translated sincerely care here indicates having strong feelings for something or someone. It conveys deep emotions. And it can be used either negatively or, or positively. It is used in the negative sense later in this letter when Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing. But here, here the word is used in a positive way. Timothy feels deeply for the welfare of the Philippians, even burden for them, and so accordingly he will serve them faithfully. This is why a faithful servant must sincerely care for God's people. And then in verse 21, we see the fifth trait. A faithful servant is selfless. Number five, a faithful servant is selfless. Verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. It is a sad truth that everyone even those within the church, can be selfish and self-centered. Timothy, in stark contrast, is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the believers at Philippi, while others are obsessed only with themselves. Paul is presumably here referring to those jealous preachers in Rome who were slandering him that we, we spoke about in earlier messages. These envious preachers are the epitome of self-absorption, the antithesis of any real humility. Timothy, being the exact opposite of these other preachers who are trying to pull themselves up by pulling Paul down, has a lowly spirit that allows him to be genuinely concerned for others. No No wonder Timothy is so precious to Paul. And so here we see the indispensable importance of being humble. If we are to be profitable servants, we must be self-denying, not self-focused. As we read earlier, God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. If we are to be profitable, we must be self-denying and not self-focused. If we are to be useful instruments to the Lord, we must be large-hearted as Timothy is here, and ready to give of ourselves and to give of our substance, as modeled by Timothy. So do you struggle? Do you struggle to be truly selfless? Is this a struggle that you're aware of in your life? Has anyone ever given you hints that you have shut your ears to? Ask yourself even now, how am I selfish and not selfless. Ask God to enlarge your heart for others. Ask for grace to care more for the welfare of others than for your comfort or your reputation so that you can become a more faithful servant. In verse 22, we find our sixth trait. A faithful servant has proven character. Proven character. Verse 22, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Next, Paul points out to the Philippian church that when it comes to Timothy, they know his proven character. A character that was evident and on display for all to see. And a character that had withstood testing. Proven is a word here that carries the sense of being put through a special taste test and gaining a positive result. The word was used of testing a metal by putting it into a furnace in order to reveal if it was genuine or an imitation. If it were a false alloy, for example, the substance would dissolve and come apart. If, for example, it were true gold or true silver, the precious metal would remain. Impurities would be smelted out and dross removed and the genuine metal would be all that was left. In fact, true metal in this sense becomes purer as a result of going through the fire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, For this, to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. The church in Corinth was subjected to a test by Paul in order to determine whether or not they would obey the counsel of the Lord. Until these professing Christians were in the fire of adversity, there was no way to know whether or not they would obey and pass the test. If Timothy had been untested in the ministry, I think it is safe to say, he would have been a potential liability to Paul when tough times came But Timothy is no novice. For ten years, Timothy has been battle-tested with Paul on the front lines of spiritual warfare, as we read beginning in Acts chapter 16 and following. And although he is relatively young, he has been well-educated in the school of hard ministry, Knox, and has passed with high marks. Timothy had the spiritual scars, so to speak, to prove his advanced degree. He was with Paul when the gospel first came into Europe. He was there when the truth first came to Philippi, and he was there when the riot broke out and they arrested Paul, dragging him into the prison. Timothy was there when it cost a high price to be on the ministry team. And so after those events recorded in Acts 16, Timothy seems to have been left behind in Philippi to watch over this infant church as Paul continued down the road to the next stop. Timothy reappeared in Berea, and he joined Paul in Corinth. From there, Timothy was sent back to Macedonia to minister. This was followed by five years mostly consisting in obscurity. We don't know much. However, that is what happens when you are serving someone else, and obscurity is often a gift in pursuing humility and being tested by the fire. The point is that Timothy had been in many spiritual battles on many difficult battlefields. He had been through the fire in ministry. He was a proven, life-tested servant to the Lord. So if you were to be useful to the Lord, know this. It will require that you be battle-tested. Realize that every trial you undergo is intended to prepare you for future ministry. If you are presently in the fires of adversity in your service to the Lord, perhaps you are facing resistance or persecution in some way for your faith in Christ, know that God always, always has refining purposes in the midst of your difficulties. Your hardships are the training school for your ministry. This is how your character is proven so that you may be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So embrace the hardship in all humility, trusting the Lord is preparing you for greater service. In this verse, we not only see that faithful servants must have proven character, we also see that a faithful servant, number seven, works hard. Timothy served alongside Paul, and the text says he served me, served with me in the gospel. Ministry is hard work, and this is seen in the verb served, which may actually be better translated, slaved. It means to be directed and pushed by someone else in the work. Paul says that Timothy, as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Timothy was at Paul's side, on the front lines of the battle, and Timothy is a hard worker with a strong work ethic. He knows what it is to roll up his sleeves and expend energy. He's willing to perform menial tasks, putting in long hours, rising early, and staying up late. He is ready to do whatever is required for the ministry to go forward. And this sacrificial labor is what Paul commends Timothy for. And one example of this is seen in the assignment that he is about to be given. Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly, verse 19. Then he writes later in verse 23, I hope to send him immediately. Paul says, send twice. It, and it almost sounds like he's going to dispatch Timothy for, to, across a short distance, like across town or around the block. But this journey we must keep in mind that Timothy is about to embark upon is one of almost 800 miles in a day. When this is not easy, when travel conditions were rigorous beyond anything that most of us today can imagine. And then once Timothy arrives at his destination almost 800 miles away and gives his report, he then immediately is to turn around and retrace his steps for the entire 800 miles back to Paul. That's a total of 1,600 miles of arduous travel. Yet we see that Timothy is ready to do whatever it takes in the furtherance of the gospel He's willing to pay whatever price is required to extend the kingdom of God. And so from this, we can derive an important principle applicable to all of Christian ministry. Ministry that costs nothing actually accomplishes nothing. There's a price for each one of us to pay in order that the word of God move forward in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So what personal cost are you facing in expanding the work of the gospel, and being found a faithful servant? Are there areas in your life where you need to step up or sacrifice, even though it may be costly, because to do so would mean greater faithfulness to the Lord? Perhaps in reflecting upon your role as a father and a husband, or as a mother and a wife, you see that you have been slothful or lazy, and are falling short of the ministry to which you are called in those roles. Perhaps you are a young man or a young lady, and upon reflection, you can confess that you have spent far too much time on leisure, on recreation, and not nearly enough of your energy and effort on study, planning, and preparation for a life of ministry and service. Now, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. But don't take too narrow a view of what was meant by ministry here. Ministry is woven into all of life, and it requires hard work. It is everything you do. It is all of Christ for all of life. And so now we find our eighth trait of a faithful servant in verse 22. A faithful servant is a team player. And some of you will readily see or wonder, I don't see team player here. You're not going to find that phrase in the text. But we can clearly see the spirit of a team player in verse 22, that not only was Timothy a hard worker, willing to pay the high personal cost of ministry, but he was also a good team player. That is to say, he served with Paul. He slaved with Paul in the gospel in a profitable way. These are two different men. No doubt with differing gifts, differing strengths and weaknesses, and also differing in their age, yet laboring together in single-mindedness for the advancement of the gospel. To be sure, when Paul recruited Timothy to join his team, the young man was already well-spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. But Paul's comments in his epistles to and about Timothy show us that despite his home churches and Paul's appreciation of him, Timothy wrestled with fears that worked against his readiness to focus more on others' needs than his own. But Paul was there. Paul was there, ready to exhort him And as he wrote, "'Therefore I remind you, young Timothy, "'stir up the gift of God which is given in you "'through the laying on of my hands, "'for God has not given us a spirit of fear.'" But of power and of love and a sound mind. When Timothy needed Paul, when Timothy needed Paul to be a spiritual father, to speak the truth in love, and to say hard things, Paul was there for him. And likewise, when Paul needed Timothy's strength, when he needed his youth, his liberty, and his trustworthiness, Timothy was a ready messenger and able to administer and attend to the matters in the church that Paul was not able to do personally. Their relationship required trust and humility, and as faithful servants they were called to be team players. That brings us to our ninth and final trait that we'll look at this morning, and it's put on exhibit in verses 23 and 24 as we return to Paul's own example. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me, Speaking of Timothy, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. The great temptation in any trial that you face out there is to let your situation become your whole world and to start believing that the present circumstances are all that ever was, all that ever is, and all that ever will be. It is totally consuming. The Apostle Paul, writing from prison here we should see in Rome and facing a possible death sentence, is not filled with despair or gloom or pessimism or even fear. He exhibits our nitrate, a faithful servant, is hopeful. He is hopeful, hopeful not only in in ultimate sense, meaning the hope of heaven, but also hopeful in the logistical considerations of each day and in the weeks and months and years that lay ahead. While Paul awaits the outcome of his trial, he hopes to send Timothy soon to the Philippians while simultaneously trusting that he too will be freed and have opportunity to come to Philippi. What great hope. And what great optimism is put on display here in Paul. And this is a characteristic very much needed in a faithful servant. What are we saying then? Might be a question. What are we saying when we give ourselves over to gloom, despair, and agony on me? As the old song goes. Fear and pessimism are not benign emotions. They actually undermine our ministry. They undermine our faithfulness. They undermine our service. It was A.W. Pink in his work, Sovereignty of God, that makes this memorable observation, writing, When we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. Did you catch that? When we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. Have you ever thought about complaining in that way? Even complaining about the weather? But as we trust in the Lord, our despair is replaced with thanksgiving. We need to know that our pessimism is viewing the world and our circumstances with with man-centered spectacles. But when we truly embrace the sovereignty of God, our fears are replaced with hope. And we grow in confidence of the truth of these words of Jesus. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And some of you Bible scholars will say, but, but did Paul ever despair? I believe he did, yes. But consider how even when facing the most difficult of circumstances, he recalls that very despair in Second Corinthians chapter 1. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Despair, displaced. By hope and trust in God. As a faithful servant, Paul was hopeful, ever trusting in the sovereign God of the universe. And I imagine whenever Paul was tempted to complain about the weather, perhaps Psalm 147 quickly came to mind. Praise the Lord! He sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly, he gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes, he casts out his hail like morsels, who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them, he causes his wind to blow, and the waters flow, praise the Lord. So praise the Lord indeed, and how can we praise the Lord unless, as faithful servants, we embrace the hope that we see here exemplified by Paul? So those are just but nine traits that came out, popped out in the text. No doubt there are many more, and I would encourage you to go back to the text and and mine it for all you can as you seek to become a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. So next week, Lord willing, we will continue to delve into these verses and see more of the traits and characteristics of these faithful servants of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, that the Holy Spirit, we need to remember, has been pleased to put before us as examples to follow. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we are we are weak. We are so very weak, but you are strong. We are frail, O oh God, but you are omnipotent and perfect in all your ways. And so we give you thanks for your holy word and for the word of life. Take your word and take these examples from your word and bring specific application to each of our lives that we may one day hear from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. These are words we long to hear, O God. We pray that you would make us faithful servants. And in this request, we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.